You know me by now, people. It has to be in the research. And there aren't any very and human breast cancer studies that like pull it out that can be like, boom, boom, see, picture proof. So I have to give the best anti-breast cancer fruit award to... Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And today's show is the awards show. We are talking glitz and glamour. We are rolling out the red carpet. The gentlemen are wearing black ties. The women are wearing their best dress. Because today we are handing out the awards to the foods that best fight breast cancer. And we have a lot of categories that we are going to be getting into today. So we've got the Oscars, we've got the Emmys, and today's show, we're going to call this one The Veggies. And even though the show is called The Veggies, we are going to start with the best fruit to fight breast cancer. And then we have the best vegetables, the best seeds, the best nuts, the best legumes, the best spices. All of those, the best ones that fight breast cancer. And plus, we're also going to be handing out a very special award to Fiber. <laughs> I call it the Lifetime Achievement Award, but my guest today calls it the Most Underappreciated Carbohydrate Award. And that special guest today, our presenter, is esteemed breast cancer surgeon and best-selling author, Dr. Christy Funk. Also on the show today, after all of the awards have been handed out, dietitian Lee Crosby, the fiber queen, she is here to answer your questions as well. Going to be talking about the effect that sugar, alcohol, gluten, white flour, and soy, what effects do they have on breast cancer? We're also going to dive into the organic versus conventional debate. Does that affect the risk? Well, we're going to find out. We have a lot to get into because today is a double episode. This is really two episodes rolled into one. So let's start by rolling out the red carpet and handing out the awards to the best cancer-fighting foods. As we continue, let's beat Breast Cancer Month here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Once again, I am joined by the most Funkalicious doctor I know. If you call me Glamour Boy, I can call you Dr. Funkalicious. Dr. Christy Funk, thanks so much for joining us again. All right, Glamour Rocker Boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So now we're in a game of one-upsmanship. I love it. We still have one show to go, too. Um, Oh, but he signs most of his emails with rock on. So 
there's the rocker part. This is this is very true. I am guilty <laughs> as charged. All right, so I'm glad that we're starting the show on a light note because today is all about superlatives. It's about the best of when it comes to breast cancer. We're going to be talking about the best foods that you can possibly eat to lower your risk of breast cancer, as you like to call it. It's cancer kicking foods time. Yeah, baby. All right. So let's start uh, with fruit. Everybody loves fruit. So when it comes to breast cancer, what is the best fruit to eat to lower that risk? You know, okay. So I would have to say for overall health benefit, I gotta say berries with a butt. So berries are incredible. You've got all of it. The wild blueberry is, is you know, way up there with antioxidant, free radical scavenging power. The blackberry, the raspberry, a cup of raspberries is eight grams of fiber, which is amazing. Strawberries, cherries, all of it. When you look at the ORAC scale, um, actually, though, at the tippity top, 124 times the antioxidant power of the blueberry is the Indian gooseberry, which, I don't know, they don't have that in my market. So, you can get it in the powder form called Amla, and I put it in my smoothie, the Dr. Christy Funk antioxidant smoothie. It's uh, in our Cancer Kicking Kitchen recipes, and it's like made its debut in 2012 and has been going like gangbusters. People love this smoothie, and it's uh, Amla in there. So anyway, I, I do know that berries have such power with the allergic acid and anthocyanidins, etc., but... You know me by now, people. It has to be in the research. And there aren't a lot of, like, there aren't any berry and human breast cancer studies that, like, pull it out that can be like, boom, boom, see, picture proof. So I have to give the best anti-breast cancer fruit award to the apple. Turns out really? an apple a day keeps breast cancer away by 24%. So those who consume an apple a day versus those who consume less than that, and I'm talking daily apple eaters, not apple pie. Um, it, basically, the anthocyanins in the red apple in particular, it's in the peel, so don't peel it. Uh, you can blend it into a smoothie and you can eat it whole, but don't juice it. I'm anti-juice. You can talk about that if you want to. Um, but these apple skins and the anthocyanins work against every metabolic pathway that cancer tries to take. So 24% less breast cancer for those eating an apple a day versus fewer than that. And it's, again, extracts from the peel have been proven to be 10 times more effective at killing breast cancer cells in the lab than from the um, flesh of the same apples. So... The fruit award goes to the apple. You could knock me over with the feather. The last time uh, we spoke last year, you were telling me about strawberries and how great they were. And so, like, I mean, you you come at me with the curveball right now, Dr. Funk. Got to swerve with the curves, Chucky. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, there's no no question. That's why I had to, like, kind of give a parenthetical tip of the hat to berries because they're off the charts like magic. Uh, they're the base of my smoothie, along with soy milk and two fistfuls of greens. But um, again, I'm just all about the science. I got, I got proof when someone says, hey, doc, show me the breast cancer berry study. I've got the berry study with the LDL cholesterol. That's what you're referring to. And it is mighty against oxidative stress and quelling it and bringing it back to baseline within hours of a meal, that cup of strawberries. But that's not breast cancer, right? It's, it's a contributor to breast cancer is to have 
oxidative stress. I dig that so much about you. You are rooted in funk and you are rooted in fact. This is fantastic. Uh, Okay, so we've got fruits covered. Now let's talk about vegetables. What are the best vegetables that we should be looking at to lower that risk of breast cancer? All right, there's no question that the kingdom of the cruciferous vegetable takes all. So cruciferous veggies, you know them as broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kale, arugula, uh, collard greens, bok choy, Swiss chard, all of these are cruciferous veggies and all of these have the power in their phytonutrient composition to reduce breast cancer largely by decreasing inflammation, literally neutralizing carcinogens, slowing cancer growth, stimulating cancer cell suicide, which you want to learn this word apoptosis. It's fun to say and it's a powerful thing that happens. Cancer cells die. They kill themselves because they're because of what they encounter in cruciferous veggies. Um, it limits free radical damage, right? So your immune system gets its boost. And um, it's been sh- these greens have been shown to preserve memory and lower heart disease as side benefits because we're focused on your breast. So a couple of studies to prove my point, And then we're going to, then we're going to crown the king of the cruciferous. Okay. Ooh. Yes. All right. 52,000 African-American women were followed for 12 years. And those who consume six servings a week of cruciferous veggies, anything from the whole kingdom, cut breast cancer by 41% amongst premenopausal ladies, which is an astounding cut and harder to do. There isn't as much cancer in premenopause, right? So it's a dramatic drop. Then, this is another favorite study of mine, the the WHEEL study, Women's Health, Healthy Eating and Living Study looked at um, 3,080 women who all had breast cancer two years ago. So they're all on average 24 months out from their diagnosis and treatment. And they found a 52% drop in recurrence for those eating cruciferous vegetables. Amazing, right? So the king though, the big daddy of them all, the award goes to crowning broccoli. Broccoli. So these, these qualities um, of a stem cell, um, do you know a stem cell can become anything you, you need it to be in your body. It's called pluripotent. It's all powerful. And I was taught in med school that you were born with a finite number of them, but it turns out, oh, no, no, no. Some prolonged fasting for about five days, you will get eightfold the stem cells. So they are replenishable, but it takes some work on your part, like not eating. Um, but uh, stem cells hang out, and they just wait to be needed. Like you get a damaged skin cell from UV rays, stem cell take your place and be perfect and pristine and immutable. It literally has immortality. So these stem cells, they have these qualities of migration. They can go where they're needed, colonize there. They can proliferate. They can self-renew. They're immortal. Oh, man, what would happen then if a cancer got a hold of one of them stem cells. Now you've got a problem. So this idea of stem cells is fairly new in the world of cancer. And it turns out you've got a lot of stem cells in your breast tissue because you never know when you're going to like get pregnant and need to like call on more lactation and such. So how do you kill the stem cell? Like the stem cell is the big daddy root of it all. It's like the beating heart of a cancer. So what would happen then 
if you took stem cells of breast cancer and grafted it to a mouse and then injected that mouse with the power inside broccoli, which is called sulforaphane, whether it's an estrogen positive or an estrogen negative graft, meaning for those of you who don't know, 80% of breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen. They have a little receptor on them for estrogen, and when estrogen hits that receptor, it's going to send a signal for the cancer to multiply and divide. Estrogen-negative tumors don't have that receptor, and they're actually much more aggressive, have a much higher mortality than the estrogen-driven ones because we can do things to hit that receptor and then inactivate it, but a negative one doesn't have a receptor. Like, what are we going to aim at it? Turns out chemo. But anyway... Another, another discussion. The point is back to the mice. Whether it's an estrogen-driven stem cell or an estrogen-negative stem cell, when you inject sulforaphane, the stem cell dies. What is happening in broccoli? So all these cruciferous vegetables have something called isothiocyanates. But when you chew broccoli and you break down the cell walls, this these uh, ITCs, the isothiocyanates, the ITCs mix with an enzyme called myrosinase, and boom, out of nowhere, emerges the crowned king sulforaphane. So it wasn't there before you chewed and swallowed. And guess what? If you heat your broccoli, if you cook it, you destroy myrosinase, and you don't have a king anymore. So little tip for the pros. Pro tip, I guess is what I meant to say. Um, I'm sure the pros know this. It's a pro tip. Uh, when you eat your broccoli, either have it raw or lightly steamed so you don't destroy the magical myrosinase enzyme. Or if you're like me and one of your favorite things on planet earth is grilled broccoli, I got some workarounds for you. You can either have your pile of grilled broccoli and just chop up a little bit of raw broccoli and put it on top. Boop, there's your myrosinase back. Or you can just sprinkle a pinch, and that's all it takes, of mustard seed powder on there or some whole grain mustard on there. And those mustards also have the myrosinase enzyme, and you're back in crowning the king business. So sulforaphane is where it's at. The other amazing thing about broccoli is that it has a bunch of indole-3-carbonyl, which takes excess estrogen and makes you excrete it through your urinary tract. So absolutely no doubt the vegetable of the year and of the perennial year, like it'll never not win is broccoli. Oh, broccoli sprouts, though, same family, of course, same thing, but different form. A hundred times the sulforaphane content that broccoli has. So, sprouts, sprouts. Let it not be said that Dr. Funk is not a fan of broccoli. Holy moly, you are the, you're talking about crowning the king of cruciferous vegetables. You're the queen of broccoli over there. I am. I have a half a cup of raw broccoli without fail every single day and usually more. Fantastic. Do you just eat that raw? Or do you dip it in hummus or what? Uh, every day. Yeah, that's your jam. All right. So let's talk then. We've talked about fruits. We've talked about vegetables. We've crowned the cruciferous king of broccoli. Now let's talk about seeds. This is another one that uh, I think in all honesty, before we get to this, Riddle me this. A lot of people know obesity is such a risk factor when it comes to uh, various chronic diseases, including uh, breast cancer. So seeds, obviously a little bit higher in fat, but they still have good nutritive values here, correct? Absolutely, they do. But we have a crowned winner amongst the entire seed category when it comes to reducing breast cancer. Absolutely, bar none, flax seeds. The power in flax seeds blows my mind. So 
I have some chia seeds and some hemp seeds in my pantry and they've been sitting there for years because why it's only so much seeds, so much fat that I'm going to put into my oatmeal or my smoothie or on top of my salad, which are the three usual places. So I already know that flax is the best. So why would you do second best? Sorry, Chia. I don't mean to be rude, but let me talk about flax for a second. <laughs> First of all, it is the most concentrated source of omega-3 fatty acids, the healthy monounsaturated fats on planet Earth, the most concentrated source. But when it comes to breast cancer, the other thing that it is king of is lignans. So there are basically a hundred times the content of lignans in a tablespoon of ground flax seeds than in any other food on the planet. Who cares? You care because lignans are extremely awesome at being anti-estrogenic and anti-carcinogenic. So remember, 80% of breast cancer is fed and fueled by estrogen. Along comes a lignin, and pop goes the receptor. Okay, so <laughs> here, I just made that up. Okay, so um, here's, here's an amazing study, because it's just so awesome and simple, and okay, ready? We get a bunch of women who have breast cancer, and it's been diagnosed, and on that cancer core biopsy that diagnosed it, they, um, they test for K67. This is a proliferation rate. It literally measures like the percentage of cells that are one becoming two. And you um, also look at HER2 expression. So I talked about estrogen receptors. There's another receptor called HER2. And that is associated with very aggressive cancers and not so great to have on your tumors. And there's another thing called, that you already learned, apoptosis, cancer cell suicide, all right? So we look at these three things that are going on in the core biopsy, and then all of these women, before their cancer operation, are given a um, muffin, <laughs> a muffin. One's a flaxseed muffin, and one is a placebo muffin. And muffins are on my, like, don't eat list, by the way, but still, so that incredible, this makes it even more incredible, because, you know, the muffin's probably with enriched wheat flour and some actually it was Splenda, but anyway, the point is flaxseed muffin, placebo muffin, eat it every day for five weeks and then have your surgery. Now we retest the tumor and get this, all right? <laughs> In the, the only thing that changed was that they had the amount of two tablespoons of ground flax seeds a day in a muffin and the division rate of that cancer in five weeks of flaxseed dropped by 34%. The Bad HER2 receptor expression disappeared by 71%. The apoptosis, the cancer cell suicide rate, increased by 31%. Flax, baby. That's the winning seed. Yeah, flax for the win. That, that is what the kids call statistically significant. That is amazing. It is. All right, so we've got seeds. Naturally, the next thing we got to talk about, nuts. So they just kind of go hand in hand. They're like peas and carrots. So do we have a king of all nuts when it comes to fighting cancer? This is what we have. We've got two good studies looking at nuts. So a handful of nuts a week, one or two handfuls of nuts a week in adolescence will decrease the presence of what we call benign proliferative disease in premenopausal women by 36%. 
Now, this proliferative disease, like your breast cells are busy. They're like trying to make stuff, and they do. They make benign things like fibroadenomas and sclerosing adenosis and radial scars and atypical hyperplasia. So these are things that in and of themselves aren't cancer, but it's showing us when we see a biopsy like this, aha, you're somewhere, depending on other risk factors, between 30 and 1,300% more likely to get a breast cancer in your lifetime because your breasts are already demonstrating that they want to be busy. All right. So 36% less busyness in those with just one or two handfuls of nuts a week. And another study showed in postmenopausal women, just one handful of nuts a week, all decreased breast cancer incidence by 30%. But the, the reason why I wanted to bring up the adolescent study is because of that study analyzed the nuts. So which nut was it? The almond, the walnut, the pistachio, the macadamia nut, the tree nut, the peanut, which nut? You can go nuts with nuts. It didn't matter. It was all nuts. Oh, wow. We have no nutty winner. Wow. Well, that's nutty in and of itself. That's, that's amazing. I'm really actually surprised there. Yeah. I, I knew I would shock you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's twice in this series now. That's two. That's two. Uh, all right. So we've got uh, nuts. Now let's talk about one of my favorite words in the entire dictionary. Legumes. I love legumes. So uh, is there a Mac daddy of all legumes when it comes to fighting breast cancer? There absolutely is. And this one may surprise and shock and confuse some of our viewers. So I'm excited to dispel a myth about soy. So the soy legume, it is a nut, but it's actually a legume. So the soybean, the soybean, when it gets roasted or baked, becomes a soy nut. So it's actually all soybeans, just so you know. So it's in the bean family. And, um, okay, you guys are probably now getting tired of me saying this, but if you're, this is your first episode with me, I got to tell you, when I wrote my book, Breast the Owner's Manual, and dove into nutritional science for basically the first time in my life, really, really looking at the science, so that everything I said was factual and backed by rigorous research. You ready for this? I went into the science specifically to show the world why they had to spit the miso out of their mouths. For 18 years as a breast cancer surgeon, I told every single breast cancer patient to just avoid soy. And I would say, like most doctors, I would guess, who even most doctors would probably say nothing. And those that said something would say something like me, which is, I know there's phytoestrogens, plant-based estrogens in soy. The chemical nature of the plant estrogen looks like your own estrogen that came from your ovaries. So how discriminating in taste do you think a cancer cell receptor is? Estrogen is estrogen. We don't know what that's doing to an estrogen-driven cancer. Just spit. How much do you like soy? Forget about it. No more soy for you. I was anti-soy, for sure. Went into the research because I was writing the little pages on soy, and I needed to show everybody why I was so right about soy. Embarrassingly wrong. Like, embarrassing because I wasn't just wrong, like, oh, it's okay, you can have soy. You better have soy. It's right there with my broccoli on my every single day I get two to three servings of soy list because of the power inside soy to reduce cancer occurrence, recurrence, and death, okay? Aha! I'm so sorry. Anybody who heard of me talk before 2017, 
I was wrong. <coughs> I'm just joking. I'm not crying. I'm actually not choked up over soy. I'm just excited to share with you the facts about soy. Okay. So let's get this guy out of the way. Um, the real deal on soy. Oh, you know what? Hold on. Let's come back to me because I have nothing to show you about this. I want you to understand why soy is protective. We have two receptors. Oh, there's science behind it. I love it. Okay, there's two receptors for estrogen. Who knew? Apparently a lot of people, by the way, because since like nine, uh, 2009, we've had strong human evidence that soy is awesome. So sorry, sorry again. But I'm here now. I'm with you. I'm with you, soy. Okay, alpha and beta, two different estrogen receptors. Alpha is the one that sits on cancer cells. When your own estrogen hits alpha, it's going to send that signal, cancer cell to multiply and divide. But it turns out with 1,600% more affinity, the phytoestrogens like the genistein in soy go to beta. All right, what do they do here in beta? Two fascinating things. Number one, it shuts alpha down. So it acts like tamoxifen, if you've heard of that. Tamoxifen is the drug that women are taking when they're premenopausal and have had an estrogen-driven breast cancer because it's an estrogen look-alike, but it's a decoy. So it's like a car in the parking spot that you want it, and your own estrogen can't get in. So now the tamoxifen is blocking the effects of your estrogen, but soy does that for you and shuts the whole thing down. The other thing that soy does is it goes out into your body where you have fat cells. Keep this story in mind because it's going to come up again when we talk about all the lifestyle things. It's a direct connection. Everywhere you have a fat cell, you have an enzyme. It's called aromatase. And that enzyme is busy churning away precursors to estrogen coming from your ovary, testosterone, or your adrenal gland, testosterone and androstenedione, turning these sex hormones into estrogen. All right? Soy goes out into the periphery to the fat cell, shuts aromatase down. And by the way, the little sinister, like, budding cancer in your breast has its own source of aromatase. That thing does engineers its own estrogen. It doesn't even need you to, to uh, have a functioning ovary. It's got that covered. It's got its own little refrigerator next to it. So soy finds the refrigerator, cut, pulls the plug. All right, so we're loving soy. Now we're understanding the mechanism, alpha, beta. If soy should wander over into an alpha receptor, by the way. It has one-tenth to one-one-hundredth of the signaling capacity of your actual estrogen. So it's like, divide, divide. It's so wimpy. It gets actually <laughs> acting like the moxifen, just blocking it from the big estrogen that would be like, divide, okay? Now we're going to go to my slide. Now I have some stats to show you. So the real deal on soy is that, number one, if what I said is true, then you should have less breast cancer in high soy consumers. And lo and behold, here are three studies that show you that you do. You have, for high versus low consumers, 73,000 Chinese women, 59% less premenopausal breast cancer. Again, high versus low soy consumption. And by the way, some of these soy consumptions, the amounts, check this out, 1.5 soy servings a week. What? I'm saying have two to three a day. One and a half a week still dropped adult onset breast cancer by 58% childhood intake, though. Very protective effects of soy in childhood because your breasts are still developing. So you're getting them into this protected mode when this DNA is dividing. So it's pure, purely like um, healthy, non-mutated 
breast DNA cells that are dividing as you go through puberty. Check this out. We talked in our first week together about the BRCA gene mutation and how it has up to an 87% chance of creating a lifetime breast cancer. And in the Korean bracket carriers, who you think are largely at the mercy of their DNA breaks, high soy consumers had 43% less breast cancer. Okay, so I see that it's protective, but when I was doing my research, I was like, well, all right, but there's just some, I'm still a little worried. Like, if you already have breast cancer that's estrogen-driven, maybe then should you avoid soy? No, you should take it. You should have two to three servings a day because look at this. There's 2,000 multi-ethnic survivors. Um, just again to point out that maybe you think it's confounded by the Asian cultures. Maybe it was not the soy in the tofu or the tempeh or the natto or the miso. Maybe it was the green tea. Maybe it was the mushrooms. Nope, it was the soy. And in multi-ethnic groups on tamoxifen, followed over six years, there was a 60% drop in recurrence versus those who were on tamoxifen but didn't eat any soy. A bigger, this is the most robust study, 6,200 multi-ethnic survivors followed nine years. There was a 51% drop in mortality for estrogen negative cancers. Highlight that word. Okay, so there are some really un, misunder, un, not understood. There are some properties about soy that are clearly anti-carcinogenic in their own right because it had nothing to do with being anti-estrogenic with the whole beta receptor thing, if you don't even have a cancer that's fueled by estrogen, and yet soy had the power to knock mortality in half and decrease the mortality in estrogen-positive cancers on those who weren't taking tamoxifen by 32%. I'm not done. Another study, 5,000 breast cancer patients, 29% drop in mortality, 32% drop in recurrence, same number. And fourth study, uh, oh, I take it back. Uh, this is the most robust study. 9,500 breast cancer survivors with a mere half cup of soy milk a day, 25% um, drop in recurrence. So clearly the king of the legumes, which you love to say, is soy. I feel like it should be, I feel like soy is feminine. Soya. Soya, soya. Uh, you know, if you if you're listening to this uh, podcast, I highly recommend you hop over to YouTube or Facebook and just take a look at the slides that Dr. Funk is putting up when she's talking about them. And so to hear her words paired with what's on the screen, it is like really eye opening when you can really see how much of a reduced risk you're talking about. And just all of those misconceptions about soy that are still so prevalent today, even though there's all of this research out there now that shows that soy is so protective, it's still this very much taboo and almost scary thing for a lot of women. For sure. Uh, yeah, I bust the lid on soy all the time. And people are still hesitant. And then and then they'll, I mean, I love my colleagues. They'll go to the medical oncologist who's kind of get this concerned look and doesn't want to say anything bad about that Dr. Funk, but maybe you shouldn't have soy. It's like, no, no, you're me. I'm here four years ago. So I totally get it and I have nothing to say, but look at the signs, please. All right. Well, let's uh, round out our superlatives now. We got one left and that would be spice. Is there a good spice out there that we should be looking at? There is a good spice. And there is a reason why our sisters in India are five times less 
likely to get breast cancer than those in westernized countries. So as you might guess, I'm talking about that pungent yellow herb, turmeric. So the award for spice of the breast year, the spiciest breast spice, I don't know how to the spice <laughs> is turmeric. <laughs> so the main ingredient, the, the, but not the only, is curcumin. And in fact, curcumin does decrease estrogen levels. You're recognizing that as a bad actor. It induces cancer cell apoptosis, which I'm going to use freely without describing because we've said it 20 times. Suppresses inflammation via COX-2 inhibition and it inhibits free radicals. So this curcumin is quite magical, but but do we have any evidence, doctor, that it actually does something? And in fact, we do. This is uh, human blood samples, okay, dripped on a Petri dish. Oh, no, 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 they weren't. The, the human blood samples, these were exposed to free radicals in the lab, all right? And then they measured the oxidative DNA damage that they were able to resist. And then everybody went away, and then a week later they came back, and they took their blood again. And this time they exposed it to the same oxidative stress as before. And everybody sustained half of the DNA damage due to oxidative stress because of the exposure. Ooh, what happened in a mere seven days to create Teflon blood? One thing, one capsule of turmeric a day, like the amount that you would put into a salad dressing or on, in, I put it in my smoothie or on my salads. Huh, that was it. A capsule of turmeric a day. And you sustained half the DNA damage. So the thing is, um, turmeric went head to head with curcumin, and it turned out that you get less cancer cell inhibition with straight curcumin than you do turmeric. So always go for the real deal turmeric. The only caution I give is if you have gallstones because it can stimulate gallbladder contraction and then that could lead to some pain and problems. So if you know you have gallstones, actually don't have turmeric. The other thing about turmeric is it is 2,000% more bioavailable when consumed with two things, the piperine from pepper and it's fat soluble, so you need a fat. So the most amazing combo then would be something like in my antioxidant smoothie, I just get it done in the morning. Turmeric, pepper, and two tablespoons of ground flax seeds. That's my fat and all those lignans, and voila. Uh, another thing would be to have it in a salad with a little avocado or some olives, and there's your fat, and you got some pepper, and you got some turmeric, and <sighs> so that's your breast spice award. I feel like the next time I go to the grocery store, I need to go in there with some ribbons, right? And and all of our winners, they're going to get a, a a ribbon there. I think that that's <laughs> that's what's going to need to happen. And I'm going to put that that little uh, superwoman looking uh, logo from your cancer oh. kicking summit. I'm going to put her on the on the ribbon as well, so people will know this is truly a cancer kicking food. Um, I un I understand here, Doctor Funk, that we have a very special award still to give out. And that would be the most underappreciated carbohydrate award. This thing is highly coveted. Everybody wishes that they could win this award. And today you are handing it out to one particular nutrient. And so I turn the stage over to you. Okay. And the most underappreciated carbohydrate award goes to fiber. 
love myself some fiber. Okay, so here's, it's so underappreciated because you don't absorb it, you poop it out. And you think, it's worth excrement. But it is so powerful. And it's much more than um, stool bulking, constipation releasing action. It has, it literally releases a litany of antioxidants and vitamins. It's not the fiber that does that, by the way. The fiber is your microbiome's favorite prebiotic. So the gut bacteria digest the fiber and release all of these antioxidant oxidants and vitamins and short-chain fatty acids that um, literally lead to a 50% drop in breast cancer when you consume 30 grams a day. But we've talked about this already. Less than 3% of Americans get their 30 grams. So let me give you some, oh, and then, so just even um, 10 grams a day will drop breast cancer by 7%, 20 grams a day by 15%. And it actually seems to have like a never ending benefit. Like it doesn't top out. So you were saying that Dr. Loomis said to try to get a hundred grams and he's not wrong because you may have a lot of gas pain, but you will have a very <laughs> low chance of breast cancer. So I'm serious that this fiber uh, benefits just goes up and up in an exponential fashion. Here's some tips for you. Black beans, lentils, split peas, one cup, 15 grams. Oh, you're halfway there. An avocado, 13 grams. Berries, one cup, eight grams. That would be the raspberry. Most berries have five grams. Pearled barley, one cup, six grams. Broccoli, oh, my broccoli is back five grams. It just shows up everywhere because it's so super awesome. Um, and uh, the other thing that I wanted to tell you that I it just recent, it's not in my book because this is new news to me um, about, about the power, about the power of fiber is um, that, okay, there were precancerous changes in a bunch of women's breasts. Uh, and then they compared their bowel movements to the chances of having precancerous changes in their breasts in 1,500 women. And what they found is that you had four times the breast cancer risk if you went to the bathroom. I'm trying to get this. Okay. If you went, if you pooped less than twice a week, you had four times the breast cancer risk than those who pooped once a day. Mm. Four times, and the reason seems to be this, and this is what I recently learned, and it makes perfect sense. Okay, turns out that if you're not pooping often, your transit time in your colon is slow, and that gives your colonic wall a chance to absorb what's in the poop, which is largely carcinogenic and waste material and toxic and nothing you really want back in action, right? Oh my gosh, the other day we got a new puppy, and she is adorable, but she had some poop in the corner that hadn't been cleaned up yet. And one was like a blueberry. And it turns out we've been feeding her blueberry. I think she thought it was a blueberry, but I watched her just trot on over and gulp it down. I was like, whoa, she just ate her poop. But that's basically what you're doing when you are constipated. You're not exactly doing that, but what's happening is your body is allowed a lot of time to have surface contact with that stool and be like, all right, well, let's absorb some of this back. And one of the things it's absorbing back turns out to be bile salts. And bile salts in those who are newly diagnosed with breast cancer were found to be 50% higher in the bloodstream than those who don't have breast cancer. 
So there's something carcinogenic about bile salts to the breast tissue such that if you have more regular bowel movements, oh, how do you achieve that? By eating fiber, fibrous foods, um, that will reduce your risk of breast cancer. That's how we're getting to these phenomenal numbers of 50% reduction for 30 grams a day. You're improving transit time and you're decreasing the ability of your body to absorb these carcinogenic compounds from the stool. So um, while I am always over the top about um, advocating for whole, whole foods and um, like minimizing supplements, um, it, you know, as you're transitioning toward more whole food plant-based eating, it is true that fiber of all the foods can be a little bit a little bit difficult for people in terms of getting their um, their 30 grams a day because they just feel bloated. So there are supplements um, that can achieve the fiber grams that you need without creating the bloating. And so you might want to explore those until you're able to transition up to, like, I mean, I put a cup of beans up there a day, which I easily have now, but when I started being plant-based, you know, you want to go like a tablespoon or two a day. The other thing, just random free advice, um, is to avoid... Uh, to decrease your gas. Turns out, I'd hate to have been these researchers, but when you analyze farts, if you're a fart analyzer, what you will find out is that 80% of the farts <laughs> are from swallowed air. Huh? Swallowed air. But if you think about it, and I was always told that in residency when I was on my GI, uh, GI surgery, but, um, and I never really understood it until I finally did. And that is because, like, if you think about, like, eating a salad or something, and you got a fork with a bunch of air, and then your typical person, chew, 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 swallow. So you got, like, particles you didn't chew. So if you chew your food to a puree as it should be, then you will be letting the little air gas molecules escape rather than swallowing them down to join your fermenting beans to make you really feel like it's floating. So that's a tip. And then lots of water. 60 ounces a day, just helping the constipated people. And then we also have pink lotus is my breast center, but it's way, we've gone way beyond the brick and mortar of a breast center. We have a very robust online social community. Um, and we've got a, the whole cancer kicking component that has a kitchen and my summit. But the other thing we also have is pink lotus elements. And I would encourage people to explore it is all intelligently created products that can help before, during or after a cancer diagnosis. Like we've got really cool things for the cancer journey, like these shower shirts that hold your drains and protect you from getting wet or this amazing, it's called topic aloe. It's a pure plant aloe vera with these botanicals that have dramatic, um, soothing effects and decreased blistering and all the things that happen with breast radiation. But another thing we have in there is a fiber that is um, psyllium-based, but it doesn't have any of the junk that you find in your typical um, fibers out there. So Pink Lotus Elements is the name of is our uh, store, and we've got all these interesting, well-created, all-vegan uh, products out there to help you on your journey toward later life, like a lot of menopause um, things, not a lot, one, menopause miracle, we've got mood support, thinning hair, all these kinds of things that help women in general that just happen to women as they age and, and go through menopause, but specifically it's geared toward the, the breast cancer patient too, to help them with their side effects from all the things that we do to you. Sorry about that, but it's all because we love you and want to go for the cure. Yeah.
And uh, we'll uh, go ahead and we'll put a link to uh, Pink Lotus Elements in the uh, episode notes so you can just scroll on down and click over and, and pick up what you need there. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so help me, goodness, uh, you did, you, you make me laugh. And and in all seriousness, I, I do like the fact that you you can, you have to smile when you're talking about such a serious subject as well. You know, it, it really does uh, help. So uh, thank you for bringing a little bit of levity to today's discussion. Um, before we go, uh, let's, we, we haven't yet really talked about our four pronged approach. I mean, really the last two and a half shows, we've been talking about that first prong almost exclusively. And that is eating a plant-based diet, you know, getting your nutrition right. But the other four prongs as part of the let's be breast cancer campaign also super important. So let's talk about those guys a little bit and let's start with weight, maintaining and keeping a healthy weight. That's an important one. It's, it's probably the most important one of all of these scientifically shown risk factors for getting breast cancer, for having it recur, for dying from it. It is actually weight that carries the most weight. <laughs> See what I did there? So obesity, who's too chubby? If you are one of the 2.1 billion people on planet Earth, there's 72% of all Americans who is overweight or obese, you're in good company, but it's not good company to keep. And of course, there's nothing about fat shaming in this. It's all about boosting your best self. So if you're not sure if you're too chubby, head on over to our pinklotus.com slash BMI calculator, put in your digits, and you will find out if you're A-OK between 18 point, I should put it on here, 18.5 to 24.9 is normal weight, but then we've got overweight, obese, and morbidly obese. So what exactly is the problem with weight? I more than alluded to it, I kind of explained a bunch of it when I was talking about aromatase. Remember, everywhere you have a fat cell, you have that enzyme aromatase churning out estrogen. And estrogen we've identified as the bad actor in 80% of all the breast cancers. So if 80% of cancers are fueled by estrogen and high estrogen levels after menopause increase breast cancer risk, um, which, is, which is true, conversely, being overweight in um, premenopausal years has a protective effect. We don't understand the exact mechanism, but certainly it has other health detriments. So I wouldn't advise like to be purposely overweight when you're premenopausal and then to try to magically drop that weight. But the, just to be transparent about like it's not all throughout life. It's postmenopausal weight that is the problem. Okay, and then we know that fat converts adrenal gland steroids after estrogen, uh, to estrogen. So after menopause, the question becomes, do obese women, postmenopausal women, have increased estrogen levels that increase their risk of breast cancer? You follow that logic. These women can't be on hormone replacement therapy. You need to just see, is it the fat that's increasing the breast cancer risk? So think about your weight when you were in high school. Get your weight now. Subtract the difference. Ready? Okay, now you got your number. If you are plus or minus eight pounds from your weight in high school, you're our null group. You're our person with him, against which we're comparing. And you also like can still fit in your skinny jeans. So just truth be told, it's kind of awesome. Just really proud of you. That was me trying to be I'm so jealous. I'm just jealous. I'll put it out there. All right, so if you've gained between eight and 14 pounds, 13.9 pounds, of weight since high school, you just increase your breast cancer by 25%. If you've gained 14 to 29 pounds, you increased it by 60% over having stayed the 
uh, high school weight. And if you've gained more than 29 pounds, you've doubled your risk of getting breast cancer. So there's absolutely no question and no controversy that obese women have between 50 and 250%, depending on the studies you're looking at, more breast cancer occurring, more, bre more breast cancer recurrence, and more breast cancer-related death than non-obese women. But here is the good news. And this is why the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign is so important because it's going to yield results that can save your life. This prospective study looked at over 33,000 women, and in those years, almost 2,000 breast cancers developed in those 15 years. And guess what? There were lower, rate, weight, lower rates of breast cancer in anyone who just lost weight. So that should be your goal, but you get even more results, 64% less breast cancer for premenopausal weight loss, but still a hefty 52% drop for postmenopausal weight loss, and 34% just for not gaining weight. Speaking of which, I do want to tell you, so all the losers win. I love it. But a little cautionary note, not to freak you out, but to incentivize you. Gaining more than 5% of your initial weight during or after breast cancer treatment, irrespective of your baseline BMI, increases the risk of recurrence and reduces survival fivefold. That's 400%. So at the very least, we don't want to gain weight after a breast cancer diagnosis. So that is the connection between weight and breast cancer, and it is a weighty one. Indeed it is, uh, pun intended, I'm sure. But at the same time, I think that if you eat that plant-based diet, that whole food plant-based diet, hopefully, then certainly that's going to uh, lower your risk of gaining that 5% of the pounds back for sure. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to gain weight on a plant-based diet, as the studies show. So you're eliminating so much of the saturated fat and all of the trans fat um, that's only found in animal products. And cholesterol, which is only found in... That's another thing. I wasn't sure until I really researched it. Some people would be like, oh, you didn't know anything before you wrote your book. But um, I wasn't sure that there wasn't any plant with cholesterol. Like, I wasn't entirely sure. Like, maybe there's cholesterol in an avocado, which seems kind of fatty, or olives. But no, no, no cholesterol in any plants on planet Earth. It's always in animals. Just in case you didn't know. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, so, and uh, by the way, uh, no fiber in animal products either. So, eh, there you go. Uh, all right. So another great way though, to keep those pounds off, we've got the diet portion, but now let's talk about exercise because that in and itself, also another key factor in reducing the risk of breast cancer. Indeed it is. And in part because it decreases estrogen levels in your body to exercise, but Studies show that 25% of all breast cancer cases worldwide are due to the deadly combination of obesity and a sedentary lifestyle. But watch this. This is, this is something that I just love to say because people are like, oh, I can do that. Perspective study, 17,000 postmenopausal women literally walking briskly for 11 minutes a day dropped their breast cancer risk by 18%. 11 minutes. We can do that. We can probably even do one better eventually, if not right away. Put some pep in your step and work out for three to four hours a week at moderate to vigorous levels, and you'll have a 30 to 40% lower incidence of breast cancer over the couch potato. And if you really want to know, exercising, the more the, the, more the merrier. It's just like fiber, apparently. There's no end to the benefits of exercise. Four 
hours per week, more than four hours per week at moderate to vigorous levels has a 57% lower incidence of breast cancer relative to the sedentary woman. So yeah, get some pep in your step. All right, so let's uh, really quickly define moderate to vigorous. Can you give us an idea of what those exercises would look like? Oh, sure. It's just uh, super sweaty. Can't talk. Can't finish a sentence. Like, don't talk. I don't know when I'm going to make dinner, honey. <gasps> honey. But that's how you're working out. Then it's moderate to vigorous. If you're just like risky walking, it's like, what did you think he meant when he said that to me? Oh, I don't know. I think if you're, hey, that's still awesome. That's your 11 minutes of briskly walking, but you need five hours of that a week actually. To really achieve the 30 to 40% drop, you need five hours of I can carry on a conversation exercise. If you're huffing and puffing on the sweaty side, you only need two and a half hours actually. All right. And let's take a look at that fourth and final prong here in that four-pronged approach. And this is something a lot of people love to end their, their day with that glass of wine, talking about alcohol here. That is another big thing when it comes to uh, breast cancer. It's a huge thing. And it has many reasons, but one predominant reason. So we'll hit on that. It increases estrogen levels. It, alcohol forms acetaldehyde, which is a potent carcinogen. Uh, even if you just like switched and spit it out, you'll already form acetaldehyde and swallow it down. It impairs immune function, which obviously your immune system is what is surveying the land and fixing and DNA or throwing it out. And it inactivates, and here's the critical factor, folic acid or folate. So folic acid is in your vitamin form. Folate is in your greasy lean veggies. This is not useful to you until it's methylated. In other words, there's an enzyme that creates methylfolate from folic acid or folate. And it's the methylfolate that runs around and fixes DNA when it goes awry or ba and it babysits it as it divides to make sure it retains its, its perfect form. So alcohol inact, uh, interferes with that conversion process. All right, so a drink a day significantly decreases mortality from heart disease. Uh, maybe. So probably mm, more recent studies are showing that it is more likely to cause you problems like esophageal cancer, liver cancer, and uh, accidents and such than it is to be protective against heart disease. But if you want to go that route, let's just talk for a second about what alcohol is. It's 14 grams in America because we supersize it. In Europe, it's 12. In America, we've got 12 ounces of beer equals 5 ounces of wine equals 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. Okay? So you have your drink in mind. You picked your poison. Here we go. Relative to the teetotaler, a drink a day increases breast cancer by 10%. Two drinks a day, 30%. Three drinks a day, 40% and so on from there. So while it is, suffice to say, not my advice to start drinking if you don't drink, you want to cut back. The American Cancer Society says a drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men is probably heart healthy and not too breast risky or otherwise risky, which again, I think we may see in future uh, years that they roll back on that. But in the meantime, too, I want to just give you a couple of tips. One secret weapon, if you are, if it's your birthday and you're going to drink, if you're, if you are drinking, um, there are some benefits to red wine. Now I'm going to say loud and clearly the benefits come from the skin of red grapes, the kind with the seeds in them. So you can eat red grapes and get all of the benefits from resveratrol. But in this study, four to eight ounces of red wine per day, not more and not less than that, 
actually decreased all cause mortality relative to teetotalers. And they pulled out the resveratrol as the potent um, anti anti carcinogenic in the red wine. So basically, resveratrol is so powerful that we're actually seeing it in a number of breast cancer and other cancer studies because it has the ability as a powerful phytochemical to inhibit the initiation, the seed maker, the promotion, the soil feeder, and the progression of, of cancer. So resveratrol is powerful. I would get it from the skin of red grapes, but there's also a red wine. The, what I was explaining before, and I'll show it to you now, is that what alcohol is inhibiting when it comes to methylfolate, methylating the folate so that it fixes your DNA, is it inhibits MTHFR, which sounds like a bad word, but it's actually methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. It's an enzyme, and it converts it into that methylfolate. In the Nurses Health Study, uh, which... Look, took out all of the women who drank one or more drinks a day, and there were like 27,000 of them in there, and they looked at the consumption of folate and getting breast cancer. So those who consumed 300 micrograms of folate had 27% less breast cancer than those getting less folate, and those getting 600 micrograms had 89% less breast cancer, which really speaks to the enzyme inhibition of MTHFR as being the main driver toward breast cancer. So while ultimately the doctor hat in me is for sure like limit your alcohol drinks, e even when you're drinking just a little, I would recommend supplementing with methylfolate just to be sure you have enough to babysit your DNA. Why? Because 30 to 50% of people already are born with a suboptimal MTHFR. There's a genetic test for that, but you don't really, I mean, okay, there's a genetic test. But it is true that people with an MTHFR deficiency have like 34% more breast cancers. Then if you add alcohol on top of that, you're really taking a double hit um, in your cancer risk. Another thing that you can supplement with that we have is methylfolate B6 and B12 that becomes glutathione in your body, which is the most powerful anti- oxidant that we know of. And then it has botanicals in it that support and protect your liver and support glucose metabolism. Um, but again, you can also just have grapes. Yeah, I, I love And grapes are so daggone tasty anyway, aren't they? Who doesn't love a good grape? <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, here's the deal. We've covered all of that. And uh, we're going to put uh, a link up to uh, your Cancer Kicking Summit, which is coming up here uh, in next year, April 2021, you've got the virtual version. And then a little bit later on in the year, holy cow, you're going full kit and caboodle there. So talk to us about your Cancer Kicking Summit, Dr. Funk. Yeah, the Cancer Kicking Summit, it's teaching men and women, so it's not just my ladies, how to kick cancer out of their lives for good. It's not for those who, it's not only for those who are already diagnosed, it really is affecting all stages of life. And I would love it if it's like a mom-daughter thing, because as you may have learned from some of the things we've talked about, intervening at an adolescent age when breasts are still developing is the most powerful point in time at which you can make these lifestyle changes have a lasting impact, despite what things may come as you get older in life. So what we're doing at the summit is to deep dive into the soil of your life, and we're going to plant nine seeds into that newly uh, fertilized soil so that you can sprout the most life-affirming orchard possible, just the most bountiful, fruitful existence based on really looking at these different trees. 
of which diet and nutrition is only one. So there is a lot to learn and explore when it comes to maximizing health and becoming your happiest, most purposeful self. I love it. I love it. So we will put a link to uh, that again in the episode notes, or you can head over to pinklotus.com slash summit to register now. Dr. Funk, we still have one more show to go. So, right. uh, and, and we're going to be talking about uh, some sneaky risk factors the, the next time you and I speak. So this is going to be a really interesting show that you're going to want to tune into. So that will be next week. But for right now, Dr. Funk, thank you as always. Signing off, Glam Boy. Award shows are always so much fun. There's always that one surprise winner in there. The one that you just did not see coming. And this year's upset goes to apples, taking home the award for best cancer-fighting fruit. I, honest to goodness, thought that that was going to go to strawberries. I thought strawberries were a shoe-in for this. But nope. <laughs> I also want to take a moment to say thank you to Good Catch and Green Fair Organic Cafe for their support of the Physicians Committee's Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Simply put, we could not be saving lives with this campaign without their support. So thank you both very much. Time now to switch gears and answer your questions. Part two of this double episode. And to do that, to answer those questions, I wanted to bring in dietitian Lee Crosby, better known as the Fiber Queen. Wanted to bring her on to raise our breast cancer and nutrition IQs. You all wanted to know whether sugar increases the risk of breast cancer. And although there are many studies now showing that soy is actually a cancer-fighting food, well, should you still avoid it if you have an estrogen-related form of the disease? Lee's also going to answer questions about vitamins and supplements, white flour and green tea, and calorie restriction and a whole lot more. But we are going to start the conversation by having Lee share her own story, because like so many others, she too had a scare with this disease. And I want for you to pay particularly close attention to the portion of our chat where she talks about how quickly a lump in her breast grew when she changed her diet. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee, it is Let's Beat Breast Cancer Month here on the Exam Room, and I am so thrilled to be joined by somebody who has really spent a lot of time helping to organize this campaign and more importantly, doing a ton of research that we will be sharing with you here today, organized to get you healthy as we try to beat breast cancer together. With that, we welcome the Fiber Queen, Lee Crosby, back to the exam room. Lee, how are you today? I am doing great, Chuck. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's so good to see you. It's been so long since we've done one of these shows together in person. It, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's mind blowing. It feels like it's been a different decade, but I'm guessing it was only months ago. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It, I mean, the days that they all just run together. I don't even know what year it is anymore. Yeah, where you are know? we even? 
I, I don't know. Uh, but when, <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Uh, oh, yeah. What I do know is that uh, this is a really an important month here because one out of every eight women, as we said earlier on the show here today, will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. And that makes the, the information that we're going to be sharing here today on the show, all the more important, the information that Dr. Christy Funk has also been sharing with us all month long. And I know that we have a lot of questions today from viewers that you will be answering, but we have a lot of new listeners to the exam room from the last time you were on and you and I were speaking about breast cancer. So let's kind of introduce yourself to the audience because this is something that is deeply personal for you. It sure is. Yeah. So on a professional level, I'm a registered dietitian with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and I also see patients at the Barnard Medical Center. I'm the lead dietitian on our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign, as you all know from Dr. Christy Funk. But on a personal level, breast cancer is an issue that, um, well, you know what, let me just jump into my story and you'll see why, <clears throat> why it matters. So at just 30 years old, a thickened area was found in one of my breasts and I decided to have the breast checked every three months by a breast surgeon instead of having a biopsy because I'd actually just had a procedure done on the other breast. Also biopsy was not looking to have another one right then. So while I, I again, we were going to monitor it every three months for a year and if nothing had changed in a year, then we were going to say, great, we're covered. Good to go. In the meantime, I also scoured the science to learn what I could do to reduce my risk, right? So I landed on eating plant-based and exercising and cutting alcohol. So I did. And after three months and then six months and then nine months, all those checkups, the lump was totally stable. And then I fell off the wagon. Uh, it's a really long story, but I basically stopped exercising and went back to eating like a meaty diet. And when I went back for my final checkup, which was just four months later, I was like, I thought I was in the clear. So I'm like three months, four months, whatever. Four months later on that new routine, the lump had doubled in size. So I had mm. a lumpectomy within a week. The cells looked atypical, which meant they weren't cancerous, but they were on their way. And needless to say, I got right back to eating plant-based and being active. And I'm not perfect, but it's been eight years and knock on wood so far, so good. Man, I, I, every time I hear that, I'm just blown away by how quickly that that lump grew in size in the span of just four months and did that, that... It was totally stable because we'd been monitoring it every three months we knew and then bam yeah it's crazy is that something that you, your doctors had seen previously i'm not sure you know, how quickly these tumors can grow or these lumps can grow but again doubling in size in such a short amount of time to me seems like holy cow that alone seems atypical well, yeah, yeah, no, there was no, she was not messing around. I, you know, I was on the surgeon's table within a week and we were getting that out of there and seeing what it was. And thank God, because, you know, when you have something like that, I was thinking it was worse than what it was. And it was, you know, it was enough. I, again, at that point, I think it was 30, I was still 30 years old. Yep. So pretty disconcerting 30, maybe 31 at that point. Cause we've been going through. Yeah. It was, it was very concerning to me. It was a shot across right across the bow. No question about it. Do you remember early on when you first went to the doctors, um, how familiar were you with the notion that diet may have played a role um, in this and how much power you actually have to reduce your risk uh, moving forward? I, I assumed that maybe eating healthier could make some difference, but I didn't really think there was much, much to that. Um, I'm just, 
I'm kind of an anxious person. So I, I, I didn't want to go have another procedure, but I also wasn't about to just like sit back and be like, okay, well, I'll just bide my time and see what happens. Like, no, I <laughs> little on the obsessive side when it comes to researching things to the point that I actually drove myself because I was not affiliated with the university at the time, drove myself over to the National Institutes of Health. The National Library of Medicine is there and you too, anyone actually listening along with their tax dollars can get a free library card to go over there. Well, I don't know during the pandemic, but this was a long time ago. And you can go read full text papers of pretty much any scientific paper ever, as far as I can tell. So I did because I didn't just buy the one of the first books I read was the China study by Dr. T. Colin Campbell. And I was like, well, I don't, you know, is this real? Is he just spinning the science? I actually went over there to pull some of the papers. And then it's sort of a rabbit hole. You know, you start pulling this paper and it cites this paper and you start looking and it was just, it was wild. By the time I got done, I couldn't believe I hadn't known the information that I now knew. Cause honestly, I had done some training in nutrition as well previously and just never, it just never landed on my radar. When did you bring that uh, information to your physician team and how did they receive it? Um, you know, I didn't really, I mentioned that I'd gone plant-based and that I'd gone off and that this had changed and they were all very supportive, but it wasn't just, you know, they're busy being surgeons. Mm -hmm. Um, well, surgeon and my breast surgeon is awesome. Very happy to have found her. Um, but it just, you know, they're very supportive, but, and they were so, they were actually really sweet. The practice, they were using some of my recipes. I actually started a blog veggie quest back when this was all going down as part of a way to like encourage myself on eating plant-based. Um, so they were actually, they were really great. I have to say, but it wasn't, you know, it's just not a focus area and it's not for a lot of breast cancer surgeons. And that's why I think, you know, Dr. Funk is fairly unique and having really done some homework here and working on her book and realizing, wow, there are things that people can do to reduce their risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of those things. Oh, wait a minute. Last question. How oh. are you doing today? How, how is Lee Crosby today? How am I today? Oh gosh. I know that that's a really <laughs> broad open-ended question. Anyone today. Can we just say that? I mean, I just, I, I, I am at a loss for words in general. Um, <laughs> today. Not usually. That's what's so amazing. I usually can't stop talking. And now I'm just like, I'm, how am I today? Somewhat speechless. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. In, the, in general, but on nutrition, I've got plenty to talk about. There we go. <laughs> how is your health today? That is the oh, question. Oh, <laughs> so far, so good. I do want to say this, that even though there are things you can do to reduce your risk, there is no magic bullet. I'm aware of that for myself and others. So you can do everything right right? And still get a diagnosis for any kind of cancer. You don't have total control, but there are things that you can do to reduce your risk. So I try to use that terminology very purposefully versus prevent because you can't guarantee prevention, but you can help reduce your risk of either getting breast cancer in the first place, or if you've already had it of having a recurrence. And, and you know what, last thing before we open up the dietitian's mailbag here. A lot of people will say, well, why are you guys so, they may think that we have a, a cavalier approach in talking about this today. My personal opinion, whether it's breast cancer or any other diseases, it needs to be approached with, you know, seriousness, but then levity as well, you know, because it's something that if you just focus on the doom and gloom of it the entire time, you're really doing something more detrimental. You're doing more harm than good, especially psychologically. That positive mental attitude to me is key. So I just don't want anyone to be confused by a cavalier attitude as they don't really care what it is they're talking about. 
Oh, there is nothing. And anyone who knows me knows that, yeah, I'm a lighthearted person in general, but I, this is deadly serious to me. I mean, it, this is personal right at home, you know, in my backyard, I'm, I got to deal with it. And I recognize that some of it is just is luck. And I, I got lucky at some level, but I also saw, and it's anecdotal, it's a sample size of one. I understand that, but I saw it very clearly play out in my own life. And then when I went and looked at the literature, well, actually looked at that first, I, I sort of saw that, you know what? Yeah, this is, this, this makes pretty good sense. So no, yes, we're going to have a good time just because I don't know. It's what else are you going to do? You laugh or you cry. Right. Um, right. But at the same time, there, there's so much hope in this message. Is it a guarantee? Nope. I mean, this, <laughs> this life, the world we live in, there's no guarantee of anything right now, but it's, isn't it cool that there's something we can do at the very least, there's some power that we can take back some control and say, all right, you know what? I can't fix all that. And I can't even be perfect all the time in my life, but I'm going to do the gosh darn best I can where I am that today, you know, and it might be different from day to day, but isn't it so great to know that there's something we can do to reduce our risk. So that's what I want people to take home. And you know what? Why not have a little fun learning about it? Because otherwise, right. otherwise you can be sad and learn about it. Well, that's, you know. What fun is that? That's fun not with fun that. at all. Yeah, yeah, right. All right. So let's uh, let's put a little hope in everybody's hands here. Let's uh, have a little fun, bestow a little wisdom, raise yes. our nutrition IQs together. Let's go ahead and open up that dietitian's mailbag now. Here is a great question. The first one comes to us from Sarah. Now, I'm assuming Sarah may have a sweet tooth. She wants to know, when it comes to breast cancer, do I need to avoid eating sugar? It depends on how you're eating that sugar. So if your sweet tooth is, hey, I'm going to have some fruit for dessert. Well, go right ahead. Fruit is actually linked to a lower risk of getting breast cancer. I'm guessing that's not what she's having her major cravings for. I'm guessing it's more of a pastries and cake and candy kind of thing, in which case I am so sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings. But that is actually linked to increased risk of breast cancer, particularly foods that are high glycemic index, right? So very in general, that means foods that are refined, right? So white flour, white sugar, sodas, those kinds of things. We really do want to be minimizing or avoiding those when we can. Uh, yeah. So white flour, that was a question that somebody else has here yeah. in the mailbag. That's that's not a good one either, huh? No, it's not. It's suboptimal. It's better if it's in something like a pasta, because interestingly, even though pasta's got white flour, it acts, it's so dense, it dissolves so slowly that it actually raises blood sugar very slowly. And then you get a slow fall back down. So you're not spiking blood sugar, you're not spiking your insulin. And those are things that can be an issue in terms of cancer risk. Um, but what you're getting when you have white flour in the context of pasta is you're, it's acting like a whole grain. So even better is to have not even just whole grains that are powdered into flour, although that's better than white flour, but to have an intact whole grain, like you should be able to see that it looks like a seed or a little, you know, a little grain that would be on a little stalk. The closer it looks to the way it grew, the better, the better off you are. Solid advice. Here's a question from Rebecca wants to know, should I go organic exclusively? Um, n there's no data to suggest that that would be, well, there's no data proving that that would be helpful. And in, gen in general, I want people to eat the healthy foods, whether or not they are organic. So I don't want someone to sweat like, oh gosh, is this soy organic or isn't it organic? Oh heck, I'm just going to go have a burger. Like eat conventional. If it's eat the healthy foods, eat conventional if you need to. If you have the time, the accessibility, the income, you know, the money to, to do that, because the organics are more expensive, 
then sure, go ahead and get them. It might be helpful. I actually just recently did a little literature review for this and not a review, but just sort of looked through it myself. And the only thing I found was I found one study and it said that, let me make sure I'm getting this right, that women who had, who ate half or more of their produce organic had a slightly lower risk relative to women who never ate organic produce, but not relative to those who just ate low amounts of organic produce. So probably, I mean, and it's just one study. So that does not like a, you can't draw a firm conclusion from that. So mm-hmm. what that says to me is if you can afford to buy organic produce, great, awesome, buy it. It might help. It's certainly not going to hurt to buy organic. It might hurt your wallet, but it's <laughs> not going to hurt you health-wise. Um, but if you can't, please eat the produce, eat the fruits and veggies, eat the whole grain, the beans, even the soy. And we can talk about soy. I'm going to guess there's a question somewhere in that bag on soy because there always is. But eat the produce. Conventional is fine. If you can afford it, go ahead and get as much of it organic as you can. If you need to be mindful with your food dollar, the environmental working group every year puts out a dirty dozen list of the most pesticide heavy or herbicide heavy fruits and vegetables. So you can avoid the ones that are at the top of that dirty dozen list. You can buy those, avoid them conventionally. So buy the dirty dozen organic, because that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And then the rest of them, you just don't worry about it. So that's actually tends to be my general strategy. All right. You want soy? We got soy. This one comes to us from Lisa wants to know, should we be avoiding soy food, especially if we have an estrogen related cancer? I love this question because it, it speaks to so many different women and who've had, who've gotten this advice oftentimes from a healthcare provider. No, you actually want to, I always do it the rhyme, enjoy soy. But I say it that way because multiple studies have actually found that soy is good for breast health, right? Now, soy does contain these substances called isoflavones, right? They are known as phytoestrogens. And since we know that high levels of estrogen are linked to increased risk of breast cancer, there have been concerns that these soy isoflavones could promote breast cancer. However, from the data we have in actual humans, people who consume whole soy foods are actually appear to be, have some degree of protection against breast cancer. Now, do we have a minute for me to get into some of the, like what's going on behind the scenes that makes that work? Take it, take the minute. Let's do this. All right. So first, what is estrogen? We kind of throw it around, right? It's like the lady hormone. Um, So estrogens are female hormones, right? They're made by women. They're also made to a lesser extent by men, but a much lower level of synthesis. Um, There are different types that predominate based on your age. So you get estrone is sort of the postmenopausal estrogen form. It's made predominantly by fat tissue. Estradiol is the premenopausal version that tends to be made by the ovaries or is made by the ovaries. And here's the kicker is that not only do we have different kinds of estrogen in our bodies, we have different kinds of estrogen receptors, right? And so like, what's, what's a receptor? I don't know, Chuck, do you want to answer what a receptor is? No, you're the dietitian. You're the one that has the credentials. <laughs> I, like, nope. I just got, no, no, all right. this is all you. Honest, fair. All right. So two kinds of receptors. They're like the little, they're like little docks, right? It's where, that's where the little estrogen will plug in on the cell and then things will happen. So there are two kinds of receptors. So there's an alpha receptor, which I like to think of as the accelerator, right? Alpha, the accelerator receptor, say that three times fast. And that can promote the growth of breast cancer cells, right? Like the accelerator car, when estrogen binds to it, it's like putting your foot on the gas. Then there's the beta or breaks 
receptor, right? And that actually is a slow down receptor for estrogen. It helps block cell growth. That's part of the cancer process. And so interestingly, whereas your body's own estrogen, especially estrone, the postmenopausal kind, but also estradiol, estrone in particular binds to that alpha accelerator, right? Pushes down on the gas. We don't want that. Which kind of receptor do you think that these soy isoflavones or phytoestrogens hit? Do you think they hit accelerator or brakes? Alpha or beta? I mean, are we seriously asking me a question? Again, I feel the need to remind <laughs> you that I don't have any credentials oh, behind my name. Right. There is no MD there, you know, come on. Now. Oh, come on. Anyway, so these phytoestrogens, they hit those beta or breaks receptors. So they, again, while they look a little bit like estrogen, they actually bind to the kind of receptor that tells your cells, hey, whoa, whoa, back, slow down. Let's not grow so much. Versus again, your body's own estrogen, which hits the alpha receptor preferentially. So that's why these soy foods, one of the reasons why they think that soy foods with these phytoestrogens or isoflavones can actually help reduce cancer risk. So, and again, in terms of the numbers, I'll just give you a few numbers here, right? So we have a 2013 paper. It's one of my favorites because I I like it because it's a meta-analysis so meta, um, which is just fancy speak for big study, (laughs) study of studies, right? I mean, meta. So they looked at data from 20, the researchers looked at data from 22 studies and they found that, and this is among Asian women who are actually eating enough soy to be able to tell where there's a difference. Whereas in America, we don't eat very much soy at all, but among Asian women, those who consumed the most isoflavones had a 32% lower risk of breast cancer. And that was observed for both pre and post menopausal breast cancers and sidebar a 2014 meta-analysis reached similar conclusions. So there's pretty solid data there, not just good for people who are, you know, don't have breast cancer yet. We also found a study that women who are diagnosed um, or the women's healthy eating and living study showed that for women who had already been diagnosed, breast cancer survivors found that those who ate the most soy cut their risk of cancer coming in back, coming back or the risk of dying from breast cancer in half. So that's a pretty good reason to go ahead and, you know, just put some tofu in your stir fry best I can tell. So that's, but again, it gives you some reasons as to why those phytoestrogens are actually not acting like the estrogens that your own body makes and may be protective. Whereas your own body's estrogens are more, a little more hazardous. Mm -hmm. Get on board the tofu train. See now, now I know the answer to these questions. And so when you put that on the test at the end of the show, I will be able to answer them. Mm -hmm. Right. These All right. I'm going to hold you to that. They're they're detrimental. Are you ready? It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Pop quiz, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here we go. Next question. Uh, This is a a good one. Um, I'm not even sure that I've seen any studies on this. You would know better than I. Does gluten play a role in causing breast cancer? I have not seen any research suggesting that would be the case. Um, any research that probably would tie in gluten would be attached to, again, refined carbohydrates. So those highly processed, high glycemic index foods, like, you know, the, the white bread and the donuts and all these things that white flour would be in, which is where most of Americans are getting their gluten. Most of mm-hmm. Americans, most of America is getting its gluten. Again, most Americans aren't eating a lot of bulgur wheat or wheat berries. You know, that's not what they're eating. They're putting, putting a pop tart in the toaster. So it's a very different 
if there, if there were to be a study that found that link, I would want to see them separated out from whole grain versus the refined flours. But no, I'm with you. That's a long way of saying I do not know of any data suggesting that there is a link between gluten and breast cancer. Tiffany wants to know, should I be going down the vitamin aisle? What is the connection between cancer risk and supplements? Is there one? Not that we have good data on. We really just don't have any, there's no recommendation on certain supplements for reducing breast cancer risk. The the best supplement I know of is to really just eat a whole food plant-based diet. Of course you do eating plant-based. You want to make sure you supplement with vitamin B12. If you're not getting some sensible sun exposure and particularly in the winter months when it's really, you can't get sun exposure unless you're a little more adventurous, I think more cold tolerant than the rest of us, um, a vitamin D supplement might be a good thing to do. But again, that'd be something to check with your doctor on. But other than that, again, the best thing you can do in terms of reducing breast cancer risk is choosing those plant-based foods and then just plugging for those other steps, getting active, maintaining a healthy weight and cutting the alcohol. You know, what's great during those cold winter months is a nice hot cup of green tea. So here we have a question from somebody who wants to know, is it true that green tea can help fight cancer? It, yes and no. Yes, there's, I don't know of data that actually say that, okay, if you give people green tea, they will get less cancer, but there are links between some of the catechins or some of the little cancer fighters in green tea and decreased risk for breast cancer specifically. Um, and I can't remember if those are lab or population studies, but I don't believe we have any like drink green tea. Here's a lower cancer risk clinical trial, but we do have data suggesting that's the case. So you know what, if you need a little boost on a cold winter day and you are looking to reduce your breast cancer risk, I think green tea is a great way to do that. And it's just plum delicious. Have you had it with toasted rice? I have. It is surprisingly good. Yes. Let me tell you something. That is your pro tip of the day. If you have not tried green tea with toasted rice, I mean, just hit pause on this recording right now (laughs) and go make that happen. Come back and you're going to say, man, they were right. It's more of a savory thing, but it's really good. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. You're not going to want to put sugar and lemon in it. Trust me. You're going to want to drink it as is. All right. Uh, Here's a great, great question. Uh, Why is it that so many doctors recommend a low fat diet to reduce breast cancer risk. What is the connection there? Okay. Well, the connection there is we have, there are a couple of different reasons that that might be the case. Some of it is when you're decreasing fat intake, you're decreasing saturated fat, which can help reduce estrogen levels. You're increasing fiber, which we know is linked to a lower risk of breast cancer. Um, I believe that for every additional 10 grams of fiber, a woman consumes per day, her risk of breast cancer drops by about 7%. And again, fiber is going to come in mostly those low fat foods there aren't too, too many high fat plant foods. There are some nuts, seeds, and avocado. Um, But it's also going to get rid of a lot of a lower fat diet. It's going to get rid of a lot of the junky stuff. It's going to get rid of a lot of meat. You're not going to be doing fried chicken, a lot of your red meat and processed meat and cheese. All that stuff is off the table, which is great for breast health. And also we have some data. There's actual clinical trial data suggesting that, not even suggesting, this is actually showing that the only diet style we have that's been proven to help lower a woman's risk of dying from breast cancer, again, in an intervention trial is a low fat diet. So I will give you the details on this one. This was a women's health initiative study. Um, they basically followed a big study, 48, more than 48,000 postmenopausal women for nearly 20 years. And that's the kicker, right? Cause cancer takes a while to develop. 
So a lot of these studies will have a five or a 10 year follow-up period. And you just, you can't really see much because cancer takes longer than that to get going oftentimes. So they follow these women for nearly 20 years and they found that women eating a low fat diet, rich in vegetables, fruits, and grains had a 21% lower risk of dying from breast cancer. So I think that right there is one of the most compelling reasons to, you know what, keep the fat content down. Don't replace it with like the snack. They want to remember snack wells, cookies. Oh yeah. Oh Oh, yeah. When I was, when I was still overweight, I used to love those things and think that that was the healthiest snack going. Cause they're low fat. But yep. we don't want people to replace the fat with like white flour and sugar, which is exactly <laughs> what they did with snack wells. So, you know, replace the fat with beans and whole grains and fruits and veggies. But yeah, you, you, yes, there is data to show that reducing the fat intake in the diet is linked to a lower risk in this case of actually dying from breast cancer, which is what I think most of us are worried about. All right. Uh, question from Nikki. Well, she wanted to know about whole grains as well, but she wanted to know specifically, I go down the bread aisle in the store and I see uh, whole grain bread and I see multi-grain bread. What is the difference? And do I still get the same benefits from multi-grain bread as I do the whole grain bread? So that could be an interesting little marketing piece there. As far as I know that whole grain, they will need to tell you what, how much of it If it's 100% whole grain or 100% whole wheat, that's what you're looking for. Otherwise they can say contains whole grain and who knows how much whole grain it contains. So in terms of whole grain versus multi-grain, you really just have to turn it over and look at the ingredient list. If it doesn't say 100% whole grain or 100% whole wheat on the front, you're going to turn it over, look at the ingredient list. A couple of things you can do. You can look at the fiber content you should be getting gosh, I'm not sure I can remember it off the top of my head, but at least two or three grams of fiber in a slice if it's truly whole grain. But the best way to look, look on the ingredient list. And if you see anything that says enriched wheat flour, enriched is just code for white flour. It's enriched because they took out all the good stuff. So they have to put it back through the enrichment process. So that's how you know, if that's like the first or second ingredient in your bread, you're not getting that good whole grain goodness that you want. So you want to look for whole wheat flour, or maybe it's rye flour, or, you know, hundred percent whole rye flour. It will say that on the label, just be Mm. on the lookout for that enriched flour or wheat flour. If it doesn't say whole wheat flour, it ain't ain't whole. And I I would imagine for you as a dietitian, that's just good advice. No matter what the food is, just flip it over and take a look at that ingredients list. Always look at the ingredient list at the very least. I want people kind of looking at the nutrition label, but always, if you can, again, if you want to shop like a dietitian, and I know you do, you're going to turn it over because you want to know what you're getting. You wouldn't just walk out in your yard and like grab something and eat it, right? Like that would not go well. So you wouldn't want to do the same thing in the grocery store because again, a lot of those products are not about making you healthy. They're about making that company have better profits. So, you know, it's on us as consumers to, to take a minute and see what we're getting. You know, I think I saw some research recently on FOP labels. Are you familiar with FOP labels, front of package labels? Ah, uh, yeah, that's, I and, mean, I haven't read up on it in a while, but. So what they, what they have found is that when a company decides to put that nutrition info on the front of the package, and it's not the full list, you know, it's typically fat, calories, saturated fat, the big mm-hmm. ones that people tend to look for. But by and large, when that information is front and center on the package, people tend to buy healthier items. And moreover, also what they found was that once one uh, product does that, once one company does that with their products, their competitors do so as well because they have noticed a difference in sales. So now who's got the info now, Chuck? Cause I did uh, not know that good. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised by it, but I did not have that at the ready. So 
again, and it makes sense because, you know, if you want to turn it over and look at the ingredient list, you got to get out your reading glasses. If you're a person at a certain age, I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's not, you know, you're like, like, no. So yeah, I makes perfect sense to me. All right. Last question here. Let's take it home. Uh, You, me, everybody are living in just the most stressful of stressful times right now. And what do people love to do when they're stressed out? Drink. Right. Uh, Uh, So we we have so many questions about this. Some people have written in and said, hey, should I be drinking alcohol to lower my risk of cancer? Other people saying, well, I've heard that it actually increases my risk of cancer. So what does the science say here? The science is crystal clear when it comes to alcohol, and that is that it increases risk for breast cancer, also for other cancers, by the way. Um, But breast cancer in particular, it's it's really clear. And it's also really concerning because yeah, pandemic this year, alcohol sales have gone up. And there was actually a study, it came out in September of this year, and it was looking at data from May and June of this year compared to the same time last year. And particularly among women, they found that any drinking among women is up 17% compared to the same time last year. And then frequency of heavy drinking among women is up 41%. And again, I, I understand, I understand why that can be the case. You, you know, you're, you're trying to homeschool kids and you're dealing with work and stress and everyone's all in one place. And it's just, it's stressful. You can't go to the grocery store without stress. I mean, you got to go the one way aisles and it's a lot. Um, so I understand why, but the data, again, it's just, they are super straightforward. So premenopausal women, each drink they have per day, it, it's a stair-step increase in risk. It increases the risk of developing breast cancer by 7%. So two glasses or two drinks a day is 14% risk increase, so forth. For postmenopausal, it's even worse news. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, Postmenopausal women, for every drink you consume per day, your risk of breast cancer increases by about 13%. So two drinks, 26%, and so forth. So you really do not want to be drinking alcohol. And there are some reasons for this. This isn't just like, you know, oh, well, we don't know why. We know why. (laughs) Mm. So oxidative stress and direct DNA damage can be caused by alcohol. Um, one of the metabolic, the metabolic breakdown products of alcohol is acetaldehyde. And that in and of itself can also cause cancer. And we know that increasing the intake of alcohol raises estrogen levels and your own estrogen can act like fuel on a fire. Cause most breast cancers are estrogen receptor positive, And we're talking the kind that turns on cell growth. Um, So that's another issue. And then there are even some questions that it might affect the microbiome in ways that might not be good for breast cancer risk. So more to come on that at some point later, but there are a number of reasons that alcohol is no good. And I will often get that, but what about red wine? Cause I heard about that resveratrol and I feel like that's going to save me. And the answer is, sorry, will not save you. Um, It might be slightly better than sitting down and taking a shot of whatever, but it's not enough to undo the negative effects of the alcohol itself. So again, it doesn't matter. It's a 12 ounce bottle of beer. It's a five ounce glass of wine or a 1.5 ounce shot of liquor. They all have the same amount of alcohol, all have the same amount of risk. So I hate to be the one to say it. And also one other fun fact, not fun fact, is that drinking alcohol can increase breast density, which is another risk factor in terms of breast cancer can also make things a little harder to see on a mammogram. So so many reasons that, you know what, just put that glass of wine aside, grab a, a mocktail instead of a cocktail. Plus you'll sleep better. Plus you'll cut some calories. So, Hey, every, yeah, you know, it works. Everybody wins. Everybody <laughs> wins. Right. 
Baby wants a bottle and so does mommy, but mommy needs to exercise self-control. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, All guys. Right. <laughs> uh, real quick, let's talk a little bit about uh, Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Yes. The the four steps here, Christy Funk, Dr. Christy Funk and I have talked about them uh, all month long, but I, I think it's always worth revisiting when we have a dietitian on there. Step number one is eat a plant-based diet. I mean, that to me, just based off of all the science that's been presented here on this show and everything else that has come across the news desk here, it really does just trend more and more and more in that direction. Just choose those plant-based foods. We don't have data to say absolutely that, yes, that's going to be the lowest risk, but the signs point in that direction. So for me, that'll do it. You know, check, please. If all the signs are pointing in one direction, I'm going to walk that way. Well, speaking oh, yeah. of walking exercise, that's, that's another great tip. Honestly, anything you can do to get moving is beneficial. So if you're like, oh, I can't do 150 minutes a week. I don't care if it's just at lunch, you eat your lunch and you walk outside for five minutes just to get a little sunshine and a breath of fresh air. And then maybe do it after again, after dinner, like anything you can do is great for premenopausal women. It is better if you can do vigorous exercise, there's data for postmenopausal, whether it doesn't really matter if it's vigorous or moderate, but for premenopausal women, the statistical significant, statistically significant connection comes in when it's vigorous physical activity. But I still stand by that just because we don't have statistical significance does not mean that there's not some level of clinical benefit to any level of movement in terms of helping people reduce inflammation, which is linked with lower cancer risk to maintaining a healthy body weight to feeling better stress reduction, which is also beneficial in terms of risk. So, so many reasons to be active at any level you can. And step number three is we, I mean, we just talked about that. You did uh, limit alcohol consumption, really cut it down. And that goes right to the fourth step, uh, which is maintain a healthy weight. And to me, I view alcohol as just empty calories anyway. So if you cut that out, automatically you're cutting down your daily caloric intake, and that's going to also help you achieve that healthy optimum weight. Yeah. And that's the nice thing is you really, they're really at some level are only three steps. Does that make sense? The fourth one is the outcome. Like you do these three things and that is the sort of natural outcome. You don't have to sit there and fixate on it or anything. You know, you eat a lower fat plant-based diet. You get as active as you can be and you chuck the empty alcohol calories and, you know, it's likely that the weight will start to come off and that you'll sort of, your body will get down to where it wants to be and hang out there. And that's really the goal. So again, it's the night and the other nice thing about these steps is they reduce the risk for all kinds of other things too. And for men, these are all the same kinds of things you'd want to do to reduce the risk of say prostate cancer for anyone, colorectal cancer, like That's what's lovely here is what's good for one is good for the other. So it really is win all around. Indeed it is. And winning also means having you on the show. So we are all winners today, Lee. (laughs) Sure you are, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having us. Wow. Thank you for coming on the show. How about that? Let's try that again. Glad to be the host. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We'll try it again. Glad to be here, Chuck. A quick follow-up to the question about green tea. I thought that this was relevant because there has been so much positive research about green tea, but there was also one study that I discovered, and Lee said that, yeah, it's worth a mention. 
This study found that women who started to drink green tea before they turned 25 actually had an increased risk for breast cancer following menopause. So we're talking about postmenopausal breast cancer. But again, this is just one study. It was done in 2010, and even its author says that more research is needed to confirm these findings. And when Lee and I were talking about this, she brought up the question of whether it was actually the green tea itself that was driving up the risk here, or were there some lifestyle factors that were at play? It's really, really fascinating. So one single study, but definitely worth a mention. All this month, we are rolling out our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. And please, won't you join us? Join us and pledge to follow our four steps, our four-pronged approach to beating breast cancer. Take the pledge with us. Follow these steps. Live a healthier life. And for doing that, not only will you be improving your health, but you will also receive a free e-cookbook that is packed with cancer-fighting recipes. And I'll bet a couple of them have some of these award-winning foods in them. So go ahead, take that pledge, get the free e-cookbook, and as if that's not enough, you will also be entered to win a grand prize pack courtesy of some of our great sponsors like GW Integrative Health. You can do all of that over at letsbeatbreastcancer.org. And there's a link to that in the episode notes. And that's going to wrap things up for this special double episode of The Exam Room. My thanks again to Dr. Christy Funk and the Fiber Queen, Lee Crosby. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, keep it plant-based, and... Let's beat breast cancer. Breast cancer.